Sometimes uh, we go on an adventure, or we've been on an adventure at some point in our life, and we look back on that adventure with great fondness, even with a desire to embark on that adventure again. That's the case with me on a trip I took with a bunch of guys many years ago. We uh, got in a couple of vans and we drove to Beckley, West Virginia, my birthplace, but that's why we went on the adventure. And uh, we actually went to the New River in Beckley, West Virginia. We were headed on a whitewater rafting trip. It would be, we would be doing a full day on the lower New River. This was a trip that would include class three, four, and even four plus whitewater. It included a, a place where you were, they called it Jumper's Rock, and it was actually a place where you could stand on the edge of a rock and jump 20 feet into the, the new river. Uh, it included another place that they called the Swimmer's Rapids, where we literally got out of our boat and you laid back Everybody wearing life jackets, of course, but you laid back, you leaned into that life jacket, and you actually went feet first through a rapids. It was amazing. Uh, the scenery was nothing short of amazing. We're down in what's called the New River Gorge. In fact, one of the longest uh, arch bridges, it's a lower arch bridge, the New River Bridge spans that gorge. So we're down in this New River Gorge, and there were boulders, I kid you not, that almost looked to me like the size of a small house. It was just amazing. Plus, you have the Appalachian Mountains there rising up above. We were with a group called Alpine Adventures, and Alpine Adventures was part of the Appalachian Bible College. And uh, so at lunchtime, because it was a full-day trip, at lunchtime we would stop, we stopped, and we actually had a time of worship, a time of reflection, and we sang at the base of that gorge, How Great Thou Art. It was an amazing trip. But the thing that made that trip most enjoyable and safe for all of us in the boat was the fact that every raft had a guide. The guide had been on the river many times. In fact, me and my friends, we were watching and we figured out who the head guide was and we found ourselves shuffling over to get to his boat, uh, to his raft. But the, all the guides were good. And the guide made sure that uh, they sat at a part of the raft where they were up a little bit ahead of us so they could see down the river. They knew what was coming ahead. The guide would tell us sometimes that we were to paddle forward, and sometimes he would say, this, this side paddle forward and this side paddle backward. We had to listen. We had to, to work together. There was one point where the guide told us, on my signal, I want all of you to lean into the boat, put your paddles down, put your heads down, because we went to a drop. It was a 12-foot drop. Our raft was going, all of a sudden it went, boom, and it actually made that sound. It went, boom, 12 feet. It was like, that was crazy and amazing. Had we chosen to not follow our guide, had we chosen to not listen to instructions, had we chosen not to do what we were told to do when to do it, 
that trip could have turned out much differently. The guide empowered us to have a great trip. If you're a follower of Jesus this morning, you have a guide. I'm not talking about the Word of God. While it is a phenomenal guide and it's very important, we also have another guide. In fact, God himself is our guide. More specifically, God the Holy Spirit is our guide. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, the Holy Spirit tends to either be overemphasized in some circles or in other circles underemphasized, and it's important that we have a balance. And what I hope that we'll see in just a few minutes today is that the Holy Spirit truly is vital to our daily lives, vital to the way that we live. Now, in this series that we're calling Timeless Principles in the Book of Acts, we've already seen two principles, and the first one was the reality of the Holy Spirit. It was trust the reality and presence and power of the Holy Spirit, and that led us to learn that we need, as individuals and corporate people, as a church, individual and corporate prayer is to be a core reality for us. Now today, we're going to take and build again on those two principles, and we're going to come back to the Holy Spirit. And the principle today that I want you to remember is simply this. Rely on the Holy Spirit to empower and guide us. The early church in the book of Acts relied on the Holy Spirit to empower and guide them. See, it's one thing to say, oh yeah, I trust the Holy Spirit. I believe he's real. But then I need to rely on him. I need to, as I've said, lean on and lean into him. I need to really learn what it means to depend on him. To rely on the Holy Spirit, I believe, means partially that in, I'm fully aware that he is there in my life in the routine and in the amazing. That he's there in the mundane as well as the magnificent. You see, it's one thing to ask the Holy Spirit to be your guide, but you have to follow the guide. It's one thing for me to get in the boat and the raft with the head guide, but if I'm not going to listen to what he says, if I'm not going to follow him, then I'm going to mess things up for those around me. This morning in the book of Acts, we're going to look at several aspects of the Holy Spirit in Acts And we're going to see just how much the apostles and those around them really followed him. And we're going to see how important it is for us. Now, there is a lot. There's a lot we could talk about today. Uh, And I'm fully aware that as soon as I talk about the Holy Spirit, for a lot of people, there's lots of questions that come up. So... Uh, my encouragement to you is if a question comes up, something I say or something you've always wanted to know about the Holy Spirit, would you send me an email? Write it down. Send me an email. Uh, It was behind me here on the screen. Uh, If you send it to info info at phcch.org, it'll get to me. And I would be happy to answer that. Maybe that's a conversation we'll have around the campfire uh, down the road. Uh, But the point that I want you to remember today, the first thing, the main thing, the overarching principle is rely on the Holy Spirit to empower and guide us. You can't read the book of Acts without encountering the Holy Spirit. 
The term Holy Spirit appears 42 times in the book of Acts. And then you also have the word Spirit, and it's capitalized, referencing the Holy Spirit, another 12 times. So he's kind of a big deal. Now, when you read about the Holy Spirit, there are going to be two terms that are going to stand out at different times. One is very beginning of Acts, chapter 1 and verse 8, and Jesus says, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. When John baptized with water, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And sometimes you'll hear baptized into the Holy Spirit. The word translated baptize is a word that literally means just to immerse into, to place into. And, and so there's a, there's a real sense that when we realize our need for Jesus, and we put our faith in Jesus, we believe that he died on the cross for our sins, and we accept that. We ask him to become the leader and forgiver of our lives, that we are, uh, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, we are baptized into or placed into the family of God. To be baptized with or in the Holy Spirit simply means that you are immersed into the universal body of Christ. And it also means, based on John 14, that in a way that I can't fully describe, the Holy Spirit comes and he indwells you. So you're in him and he's in you. Now, I realize I'm giving you a simple definition that people have made very difficult. I think sometimes we complicate the simple things of the Word of God. Some people will tell you that you haven't been placed into the Holy Spirit or He's not into you until you experience the utterance of some unknown or unlearned language. And they will turn to the book of Acts for that. But I will just tell you that doesn't bear itself out in the book of Acts. There are only three times in the entire book of Acts that people are specifically moved in that way. We'll look at chapter 2 a little more detail, but in chapter 2 we have the apostles, once the Spirit comes on, they go out and they speak to all these different people in their languages and their dialects. In Acts chapter 10, uh, Peter goes to Cornelius' house. Cornelius is a Roman military man. And Peter shares with them the gospel because Cornelius has been praying and asking God for direction. And all of those people then break out in some languages, in some what's called speaking in tongues. And Peter, when he goes back and tells the Jews what happened, they realize, oh, then this message is for these people too. It was a symbol for them saying, and Peter says, God doesn't show favorites. And then you'll have a third specific time in Acts 19 where the brand new Ephesian believers can see that there's been a change in how God is working in their lives. But nowhere else in the book of Acts is it evidence that those who are baptized with the Holy Spirit are required, key word, to utter an unknown language. The Apostle Paul doesn't, Lydia doesn't, uh, the Philippian jailer doesn't. We could go on down the line. So don't hear me say, do not hear me say that it doesn't happen. Don't hear me say that it can't happen. Hear me say that we need to be careful not to lock God into a pattern that he doesn't set forth. Uttering an unknown or unlearned language is not a requirement, 
nor is it even a proof of salvation in the Bible. Now, there's a second term you'll encounter when you study the Holy Spirit. It's the term being filled with the Holy Spirit. And in this term, we discover that we, as the believers, are the recipients, and God, the Holy Spirit, is the one who does the filling. The idea of filling, really the word literally means to be controlled by. So the idea is that we open our, our lives up so much to the Holy Spirit that then we allow Him to come into our lives and help us reflect godly behavior and godly actions. And in fact, one of the specific results of that is found in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, where, where the Apostle Paul says the fruit or the product of the Spirit in your life is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So in, in the Bible, when we submit ourselves to the Holy Spirit, when we're filled with Him, there is evidence of that in these attitudes and in other ways. And, and really, the filling is something that should happen on a regular basis. I need to daily submit myself to the Holy Spirit. An important thing to remember is when I'm relying solely on the Holy Spirit, my life is different so that others can see it. Now, with all of that background, I want to look at just four realities of the results of relying on the Holy Spirit that we see in the book of Acts. And the first one is simply this. The Holy Spirit empowers ordinary people to boldly share the message of Jesus. In Acts chapter 2, in Acts chapter 1, remember Jesus told the apostles, wait. Wait until the Holy Spirit comes on you. And so uh, day of Pentecost is 50 days after Passover. So roughly 50 days after the death of Christ, there's this day of Pentecost. Uh, and, and the day of Pentecost is a very important time in the calendar, uh, in the Jewish calendar. Uh, it is a time where uh, God's people celebrate the harvest, the first fruits. And harvest is, if, you ever, if you've grown up in a farming community, I grew up in Kansas, uh, and, and uh, it was like middle June, middle to late June is harvest. And man, when the harvest comes in, and it's a bumper crop, uh, and, and it's celebratory, and in that time, harvest was celebratory. They celebrated the harvest. They celebrated the, the first fruits. And so Jerusalem is swollen with people at that time because people from all over the region had come for Passover. And since travel took a long time, then they, they just stuck around till, till Pentecost. And so in Acts chapter 2, we have the followers of Jesus, roughly 120 by now, men and women, up in the upper room, and they're praying, I believe. And true to his word, Jesus sends the Holy Spirit. He comes upon them. And, there was, and, and to help them understand that this was God's work, there's, there was physical evidence of it. First of all, they looked around, and there were some tongues of fire, these little flickers of fire as a, on, above their heads. It's like, whoa, something, something's happening here. And then uh, the Bible tells us that there were these people from all over every nation and they heard this sound of a mighty wind, just this whooshing. 
And it was, a, it was loud enough and strong enough to get their attention. And so you have this area swollen with pra- travelers, and, and these, this violent wind catches everybody's attention, and out of this building come 120 people, and they are speaking in the languages of the people around. There is a lot, I mean, they, they, there's a list here. We'll come back to it in chapter, in, later on, but in verse 9, there's a list of all the people that are there, and they're from a variety of different things, and the, the specific is they, they're speaking in their own language and even dialect. They are speaking, they're using idioms. Okay, we live here in the Midwest, all right? We kind of have a dialect, you know? In fact, if you live on the south side of Chicago, you have a a different way of speaking than we live on the north side or on the western suburbs. I I was born and raised in West Virginia. Hey, y'all, that's a whole different dialect. We say things differently over there. Accents are different. If you live up in the Northeast, it's different. If you live out in California, there's these different dialects. And they were speaking them. And that shows great understanding. That just doesn't happen when you learn the language. And so here they are. And they said, how do they know our language? How do they know our dialects? They're from Galilee. Galileans were considered kind of the country bumpkins. And it catches everybody's attention. And at that point, Peter steps up and addresses the crowd because some of them say maybe they've had a little too much celebrating going on. You know what I'm saying? A little too much wine. And so Peter steps up and he addresses them with courage. Now think about this. This is Peter who just... Two months earlier, roughly, said, I don't even know him. I don't even know Jesus. You ain't going to arrest me. I don't even know the guy. And now he's standing there boldly before the crowd. This is Peter, who at the end of John, John 21, looked at the disciples and said, I'm going fishing. I'm going back to business. I need to put food on the table for my family. I'm done here. And Jesus had to call him back into service. Peter preaches boldly and he leans heavily on the prophet Joel and he shows how that what is happening here is fulfillment of God's prophet Joel. How does Peter know all this? Well, yeah, he learned in synagogue, but I believe it was the Holy Spirit enlightening him, bringing to his mind the prophet Joel and he speaks with power. He shows them clearly that Jesus was the promised Messiah, that his crucifixion was by divine design, that he rose from the dead. And while he's speaking, the Holy Spirit is doing his work in their hearts. You see, in John 16, verses 8 and 9, Jesus said one of the things that the Holy Spirit's going to do is he's going to convict people of sin. And you look down here at verse, chapter 2 and verse 37, and we read, When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And when they told them what to do to repent, to be baptized for the forgiveness of sin, 2,000 people made a decision for Christ that day. Unreal. That's Holy Spirit work. When we rely on the Holy Spirit, sometimes he empowers 
ordinary people to boldly share the message of Jesus. We saw that a little bit last week. We looked at Peter and John. Remember, they were arrested for healing this man, and, and they come back. They report what the Sanhedrin said. And remember, all the people prayed, and when they were done praying, the, the Holy Spirit shook the building where they were, and it says they went out and they proclaimed the word boldly. Now, before you say, well, Pastor Scott, I'm no Peter. That's, this, is, this just isn't who I am. You don't get it. I'm an introvert. I'm shy. Now, I get it. I know introverts. You don't get it. Every time I try to tell somebody about the, the gospel, I get tongue-tied. I, I don't even, I, I get things mixed up. Yeah, you know what? God won't make you who you aren't. But God, the Holy Spirit, empowers us at times to do what we did not think we could do in the moment we most need it. You see, God may not give you another language on demand, and I don't think that's the point of Acts 2, but I think God, what, what God will do and what he chooses to do through you and through me when we rely on him and submit to him and allow him to work in our lives is this. There are times when God will give you the words you need to comfort a neighbor in their grief. You know, there are times when Charlene and I have been sitting there maybe doing counseling with a couple or with an individual, and, and one of us will come up with something and say, well, what about this? I remember once we were talking to someone, and I just asked a question, and it was like, it, it, it just it changed the whole direction we were going, and, and God used it to make a difference. And later on, Charlene goes, when did you think of that question? And I said, in that moment, that was Holy Spirit giving that to me in the moment to say, ask this. God will do that. Sometimes God will give you the words you need to share with a coworker who asks, why are you so religious? Why, why, do you, why are you so religious? What, what makes it work for you? Sometimes the Holy Spirit works in our lives and gives us the courage and the wisdom to make a hard decision and sometimes that decision, we may not know the results of that decision, but God says, I want you to go this way. Why? No, just do it. Go this way. Kind of like the story I told in the, uh, I think in the email I sent about we're driving and no gas. And, and I said, help. And I heard the voice that said, take this exit. I didn't know why I should take that exit. I knew I needed to obey in that moment. And sometimes it'll happen that way. That kind of stuff, Holy Spirit working, giving you words, comes when you learn to daily rely and submit to the Holy Spirit. Here's the second thing I want you to remember today. The Holy Spirit dramatically changes lives. In Acts chapter 8, we discover one of the early deacons named Philip goes out and uh, up to Samaria. And remember the, the outline, right? Judea, Jer Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the other most parts of the earth. And so Luke kind of follows that. So Philip goes to Samaria in Acts chapter 8, and he preaches, and people come to know Christ. 
Word gets back to Peter and John. They come into Samaria to check things out. They listen to the story of people putting their faith in Christ. And we read in Acts chapter 8, verse 14 through 17, that when they heard all of this, they, they prayed, and this people received the Holy Spirit. We're not told exactly what happened. We're not told what it looked like. We shouldn't make an assumption because God just doesn't, he just wants us to know that it was evident to them. Because when we put our faith in Jesus and we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, there are changes that happen in our lives and it is noticeable to others. Sometimes the change is subtle, sometimes it's not, but it's always evident. But nowhere in the book of Acts is the dramatic change of life so evident than in the person that we would one day, that we will eventually call the Apostle Paul. You meet him first at the end of Acts. At that point in time, his name is Saul. He's a young man, probably a new member of the religious ruling class called the Sanhedrin. And he's there, we meet him, because one of the other early deacons, a guy by the name of Stephen, is arrested on false charges of blasphemy. He's brought before the Sanhedrin for this trial, and when he's asked to defend himself, he gives an impassioned recounting of the work of God through Jewish history all the way up to Jesus Christ. And he is so impassioned and his speech is so powerful that it enrages those who are listening. It enrages his accusers and they don't know what to do with it. They're not asking the question that the people did in chapter 2, what do I do? They're so angry they drag him out of town and they're going to stone him and they hand their coats to this young guy, Saul. Hold my coat. Here we go. And... Uh, Chapter 8 and verse 1, as it kind of transitions from chapter 7, says that he approved of the action. Saul was standing there approving of a follower of Jesus being sent to his death by getting softball-sized stones thrown at him until he dies. We don't see Saul again until chapter 9. Chapter 9 and verse 1 reads this, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Saul was going to arrest followers of Jesus. He was breathing out murderous threats. If they died in prison, so be it. They shouldn't be following this. Just He was as, as against the movement of Jesus as one could be. And while he's on the way to Damascus, an amazing thing happens. He is met in a most powerful way by Jesus. It is so powerful, he is knocked off of his horse and blinded. Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? And then he tells him, get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. So Saul's put back on his horse. He's blind now. He's led into the city of Damascus. He's taken to a place. He says, three days. For three days, he doesn't eat anything or drink anything. It's a total fast as he rethinks his career options. A man named Ananias 
Holy Spirit goes to him. This man is my chosen instrument. <laughs> Ananias says, first of all, it begins, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. I'm in verse 11 of chapter 9. And ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he's praying. In a vision, he's seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. <laughs> Ananias says, whoa, 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 Lord. Um, I've, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your people. And he's come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. You know, sometimes the Holy Spirit tells us to do stuff that doesn't make sense. And so Ananias says, okay, I know about this guy. Okay, is this the end for me? I mean, is this, I've heard about him. Go. That's all he's told. He's not explained anything. Well, he is eventually. This man is my chosen instrument. There's a lot of good guys out there, Lord. You're choosing him? Yes, he's my chosen instrument. So Ananias goes. He lays hands on Saul. He prays for him that he could be filled with the Holy Spirit. And Saul can see again. And all of a sudden, his strength is, is renewed. He's baptized. And now, all of a sudden, he does a complete 180. You see, Saul was trained as a rabbi. Saul knew the Old Testament scriptures forwards and backwards. He knew what they said. So all of a sudden, when this transformation comes in his life, he realizes that he's been wrong, and he takes the same scriptures that he was teaching against Jesus, and he turns them around, and he goes, oh my goodness, and he starts teaching with power because his life was dramatically changed. Let me ask you this morning, how is the Holy Spirit changing your life today? Oh, it may not be a dramatic change. It may not be a complete 180. But how is God working in your life today? The question asked of me years ago was, how is Jesus discipling you today? Write that down. Think about it. How is God changing me? How am I letting the Holy Spirit work in my life? You see, you cannot make a profession of faith in Jesus and then not change. It's impossible. If you truly have put your faith in Jesus, he is changing you and wants to change you. How is the Holy Spirit changing your life today? The Holy Spirit can dramatically change lives. But here's a third thing. The Holy Spirit directs God's servant. Let's stick with Saul for a minute. When Saul escapes Damascus in a very dramatic way and comes to Jerusalem, nobody wants to mess with him. Nobody wants to, they don't, they don't want to mess with this guy. They're skeptical. Is this just a ruse? Is this just a way to entrap us? They're skeptical. But there's one guy, a guy by the name of Barnabas. We're going to spend some time with Barnabas at the end of this series, Lord willing. Barnabas, it says he took him. In other words, he sat down with him. He took the time to listen. He took the time to hear Saul's story. He took the time to hear Saul's heart. And then he used his own entrance to the apostles and he went and he presented Saul to him, to them. 
Now, Saul drifts away. In fact, he's not heard of again until chapter 11. And it's in chapter 11 where things are starting to happen now in Antioch up north. And so Barnabas is sent to Antioch to see what's going on up there. Is, is, is the Holy Spirit up there? Is, is, the, is the church growing up there? What's happening? And he sees God's hand at work and he realizes, oh, I know who can help me. And he goes all the way back to Tarsus. It's in southern, south central Asia Minor. He goes back and he finds Saul. He goes and he looks for him. And he brings him back and they work together. And then we read this passage. They're working along. Things are going great. Church is growing. People are coming to know Jesus. Acts chapter 13. Now in the church at Antioch there were prophets and teachers Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menahan who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them out. The Holy Spirit directs God's servants, and that's you and me. We have no indication that Barnabas and Saul were involved in some kind of a strategic planning session. We don't get the idea that they were looking at maps of the larger Mediterranean area and putting pins in certain places. We don't have any indication that they had a great vision. 60 cities by 60 AD. 60 by 60, we're going to call it. We don't get that. They were just active in ministry, active in teaching, active on a team of leaders, active in worshiping the Lord, and it was in that atmosphere of prayer and fasting and worship that the Holy Spirit said, I want those two guys. Set these two guys apart for me. When you and I rely solely on the Holy Spirit, He will guide and direct us we don't have to push our way forward we don't have to prod we don't have to beg we don't have to plead we simply have to be active where he's placed us now i paraphrase henry blackaby from his study called experiencing god keep doing the last thing god told you to do until he tells you to do something different Be active where God has placed you. Remember again, that first command in Acts is wait. God is always at work. And as I look at Acts, and I understand a little bit of the history of Saul, who would become Paul, it's clear that God took time in his life to prepare him. Paul talks about 14 years of uh, being prepared later on. There is scholarship out there that suggests that young Saul was married and it's possible he may have lost his wife in childbirth. Maybe if that's true, he needed time to grieve. Maybe he needed some time to mature, to just kind of grow up a little bit. Maybe he needed time so that others would forget about that reputation he had and see him as somebody different. I don't know what the case is, but I know this. When the time was right, the Holy Spirit directed him. 
Saul steps into the room that God has made for him. But it's not just individuals. Fourthly, we need to realize the Holy Spirit unifies God's people in worship and service. I'm in Acts 13, so we'll start there. In just this list, we have Niger, Cyrene. We know Barnabas was from Cyprus, and Saul, as I've mentioned, was a Roman citizen from Tarsus, uh, which would be south-central Turkey. But then you go back to Acts chapter 2. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, Jews, uh, Cretans, Arabs. I mean, there's this list of people. All kinds of languages, all kinds of dialects, all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of ethnicities. And at the end of chapter 2, look what happens. Pick it up in verse 44. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions and gave it to give to anyone who had need. And every day they met together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. They were all coming together with all of their backgrounds, with all of their differences, with all of that. And they came together for a single focus to worship God, to worship Jesus Christ, which is what Jesus said the Holy Spirit would do. In John 16, 14, he said of the Holy Spirit, he will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. This, this coming together is an answer to Jesus' prayer in John 17, 21, where he said, I would that all of those who believe in me to be one, Father, as we are one. God, the Holy Spirit, unifies God's people. We see it described again in Acts chapter 4 and verse 32. All the believers were in one heart and one mind. No one claimed that they had any possessions that was their own, but they shared everything they had. They were willing to sell property to help people out. It was that kind of unity, that kind of compassion, that kind of togetherness that caused people to go, whoa, I want to be part of that. I want to be in on that. When we are reliant on the Holy Spirit, He will use a variety of means to open others up to the need of their own heart, which they were previously aware. When we rely solely on the Holy Spirit to empower and guide us, we see God work in amazing ways. We find sometimes that we're empowered to speak the good news of Jesus. We discover the ability of the Holy Spirit to change lives, and we witness how the Holy Spirit will direct us and others in our church ministry. And to the delight of our Heavenly Father, we learn that the Holy Spirit wants to span all barriers. Age, culture, ethnicity, language, race. 
Now, it doesn't mean that he wipes all of those out. Not at all. It's not like we're just some kind of monolithic uh, group of people that just all look and sound alike. No. I think the beauty of the unity is that we bring all of our differences together and we appreciate them. God wants to build us into a cohesive, creative unit of worship and servants and compassion. And we shouldn't just limit it to the book of Acts. He still wants to do that today. When I was on that raft all those years ago, it was imperative that we listen to and follow the instructions of our guide. Our safety and our enjoyment depended on it. You see, all it took would be one person going rogue and countering the guide's instructions and deciding that he would do what he wanted to do. He could have sunk the boat. And when I think about that, I'm reminded, and I think about all of this that we've talked about here, I'm reminded of what I think is a very disturbing verse tucked into the end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. It's a very brief statement. It's verse 19. Do not quench the Spirit. A literal translation is stop putting out the Spirit's fire. You see, I can talk about Holy Spirit all day long. You and I can marvel at the Holy Spirit. But the fact is, we each need to submit ourselves to the Holy Spirit. There is a way that we can put out the Spirit's fire in our lives. And that disturbs me. You see, I need to listen to the Spirit. I need to follow His instructions, the instructions that have been written and the instructions He gives me in my heart. And I've found that the Holy Spirit won't force Himself on you. If you choose not to listen, if you choose to go your own way, God's grace, He allows you to do that. So this morning I simply ask you, are you following your guide? Because there is a lot of white water out there. And God and God alone is the only one who knows what's ahead. And when we rely solely on the power of the Holy Spirit to empower and guide us, we find not only soul satisfaction that our hearts desire, but we have the confidence and the guidance to navigate the next turn in the river. Father, thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for being here. Thank you for being in our lives. Thank you for speaking to hearts even now. I pray, Lord, that we would be those who learn what it means to daily rely on the Holy Spirit to empower and guide us. That we would be careful, Lord, to not make our own emotions the voice that we hear, that we would learn to discern your voice. And I know it takes time, and I know it takes effort. Would we do that individually so that we can do that corporately, so that we as individuals and as a church, can follow you in obedience for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.